You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Mr. Vice President, Miriam hosted a coffee for Walter Mondale in 84. He stood in their living room in front of the fake fireplace. Like the candidate, the plastic logs lit up but gave off no heat. Mondale, mournful and apologetic, smiled wanely as Leo said, Nice to meet you, Mr. President. Nice to meet you, Mr. Vice President. Nice to meet you, Mr. Vice, as if a record had skipped in his head. Mondale nodded at him as if to say, It is me, my son, but if you truly knew me, you would not be so impressed. Popper wants it all to mean more now. Still, it was the former VP in the flesh, and his mother could not have been prouder or more radiant in her optimism about a future led by this man who would beat Reagan. Walter Mondale has passed life. The three of them, Miriam, Leo, and Alexander, were part of, let's say, the 35%, maybe 38% on a good day, of the country who believed in Walter Mondale not only as a man but as an idea of human decency. Miriam, serving platter after platter of mini-pizzas, exclaimed to her new, unawestruck neighbors from the apartment complex, a few retirees, a smattering of teachers, isn't he sensational, isn't he? Who needs Gary Hart, his ruggedness, his good hair? No, plod, we must. Peter Orner is the author of Esther Stories and The Second Coming of Mavala, Chicago. He's the editor of Underground America and Hope Deferred, Narratives of Zimbabwean Lives. His work has appeared in Atlantic Monthly in the Best American Short Stories. His new novel is Love and Shame and Love. Thank you for joining me, Peter. Oh, a pleasure, Rick. You know, um, as I was reading this book, I was thinking, you know, that you could really see the seeds of this book in your first book, Esther Stories, where you took, uh, collected kind of the final two sections were essentially uh, short novels consisting of uh, linked stories. Right. I, I, I guess I, I missed those people, and I, uh, you know, carried them around with me for 10 years and decided that, um, you know, I think when you when you write a story, especially... Uh, characters sort of die in your mind and, and it's always made me sad <laughs> I, I, I i'm a story writer at heart i think and i i what i love about stories is also what i makes me sad which is that they end and then you never meet those characters anymore and so i think i'm a novelist who likes to resurrect people and so i think I, this was an act of resurrection to bring these bring this family back talk a little bit about um one of the things that strikes me about this book, uh, Love and Shame and Love, and, and also uh, the, the final two sections of the Esther stories, it must require incredible discipline not to just go on. I mean, because you have these kind of, you, you have a certain style, and, and it's uh, kind of vignettes or fade-outs, and, and it's really beautifully architected, and it works brilliantly well. But it must be really difficult. Don't you just want to sit down and write 30 pages? <laughs> I, uh, you know, I, I, I wish I had that problem. For me, um, you know, I, I, my great teacher and, and good friend, and it was the late Andre Debus. And Debus's stories, which I very much love, are short versions of 
longer things that he wrote, is the way I understand it, is that he would cut 30, 40, 50 pages, and, and then he would sculpt it down. I wish I had the problem of having that kind of content. For me, it's like blood from a stone. I, 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 can't, I can't really quite do anymore. And so it, I, I have this strange thing where I don't necessarily have the desire to go on, so what I do have better be okay. Uh, well, I really love that your your pieces because they seem um, almost like uh, prose poems in many ways. Mm -hmm. So I, I'd like you to, to just talk about developing that style. Were you a poet? No, no, I, I, I've never written a poem in my life. Now, uh, when you what kind of when you first started writing, what kind of stories did you turn out? We see some of the stuff in the Esther stories. Is that indicative of what kind of stories you read as a kid? I mean. Yeah, I think I've always been attracted to uh, moments. You know, I, that to me, I mean, it's n not necessarily what happens, although, you know, I, I, things obviously have to happen. Things happen in people's lives. But the things that, that I remember most, even about my own life, is not necessarily a happening, but some, maybe a gesture somebody made or, a, or, or, or the way the lake looked at a certain time of day. Uh, and that's what I find, like, the plot of my own life. So I think I try and translate... That on the page. I know it's strange. <laughs> no, well, it really works really beautifully. And I, I really love the way you develop your language because it's so, um, it seems so free and natural, and it really gives us this combination of, it's very funny. This Your new latest book, Love and Shame and Love, is very funny Thank all you. the way through, but it also has this real human and often a very poignant feel. And I think what makes your poignancy work is that you never take it too seriously. Yeah, I mean, you're so generous, and I, I, I think that I think if we took our poignancy seriously, <laughs> we'd be in trouble. You know, I think, I mean, who would want to hear? I mean, you know, I think we, I mean, I, I guess in my own life, I probably take my poignancy seriously, but I think I, on the page, I think it's important to, um, you know, I think the, the humor of, of of hard things is what gets us through it and we know this and i think sometimes on, on i read books where they've forgotten that and i feel like um for me if we don't laugh at this stuff uh i'm not sure we can endure and i think part of the endurance comes from the comedy of uh, even even sad family situations which i seem to specialize in lately <laughs> I love that phrase, the humor of hard things. That's a great, that's a great concept. <laughs> now, this book um, gives us three generations, mm -hmm. and that seemed, you are not that old. So <laughs> talk about there. doing some of the, the research and, and, and making this stuff feel really real, because not only um, have, you know, the historical facts change, mm -hmm. but the way people talk changes. And that's sure. one of the things this does really well, this book captures really well, is the way that communication between people has changed and the way we experience those moments, though, is still somewhat universal. I, I think, yeah, I mean, but, but the way we communicate is so, becomes so different. And watching my parents communicate as opposed to how I communicate now and, and certainly um, my grandparents' generation, which figures uh, heavily in this book, and even, even my great-grandmother or a great-grandmother, I should say, is, is, uh, makes an appearance in the book. And I, I feel like, you know, the way that people have, the, way, the intimacy that people ha have now I think was sort of disguised in a way in the, in the past, and I feel like, for example, in the book I'm I'm using um, letters that uh, the grandfather in the book writes from World War II to his wife, and I, 
and those were based on, on actual letters, that I found that it was so difficult to say really obvious things, and yet also he would put things, he, he was so lonely in, in, in the book and in, in, in real life, um, because it's based on my own grandfather's letters, but I, I felt like he was saying stuff that, I don't know, somehow he could get away with that, and now you can't? I, I don't know if I make any sense at all, but I, I, I do think there's a difference in the way that people would be writing letters home from the war now, as opposed to the way they did it then. There's a certain immediacy with email and everything, and a letter that would take two weeks to get here uh, would be something completely different. And he, he was crying out, and he's crying out in the book for her to acknowledge that he's even gone, and she can't seem to do it. And I found that that lack of communication would, would characterize at least that generation more so than the current generation in the book, which seems to talk a lot, but I'm not sure they're ever quite connecting as much as they want to. Well, you know, one of the things, too, that uh, when you mention that time gap, there's so much more packed into those, like, single-paragraph sure. letters. That's two weeks' worth of somebody's life and heart and two weeks' worth of those kind of moments that you capture so well. Yeah. I mean, can you imagine? You know? It's got to be tough. <laughs> like, you, 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 the, the mail's going out in the afternoon, and you've got to put your heart out there, and you're out there at sea like, like the grandfather in the book is, and he's just so lonely uh, for her. And that's what um, struck me in my own grandfather's letters from the war that I, that I adapted and changed and manipulated as fiction writers do. But I, what I was so struck by was um, his loneliness. And yet, when I knew my own grandfather... He talked about the war like it was this great sense of camaraderie that he was having on the ship. So it's really ironic that in his soul, he was very lonely. And I tried to capture that in the fictional world that I have here. Now, uh, when you're architecting this book, what's nice about it is that we experience it. It's like, it's um, a little bit of uh, Slaughterhouse-Five for us as readers. Sure. We're unstuck in time. Mm -hmm. and, and that's a really nice way because it allows us to put together the puzzle slowly. In a sense, it becomes a mystery because it doesn't play out chronologically. And so we're crying, we get little pieces of the puzzle, and it's mm -hmm. really fun for us as readers to put it together. I'm wondering if you had it put together before you started writing it or if it came out this way. I have to say, I, I never quite know what I'm doing, um, and especially since I, I really don't consider myself a novelist, even though now I've written two, I've written, and, and, and they, they seem to come in this strange process where I, where I just sort of start to collect scenes and moments and, and, and you know, arcs of story, and then I, you know, they start to kind of add up on a bulletin board, I write by hand, and I sort of pin it up all over my garage, and then so I can kind of like walk by the, the book in some ways. And it starts to, it, this happened both books, the both novels that happen this way, that sort of they start to coalesce after I've written a certain amount of text. And then I'm like, oh, what have I done? And then, you know, hopefully it's a book, but, you know, God knows that next time I'm sure it won't be. So. <laughs> no, I mean, this is one hell of a book. I mean, one of the things that's nice about this, I think the way you write makes these kind of stories a lot easier to read. I mean, as readers, this is a lot easier for me to swallow than if the whole thing was just laid out in one chronological swath. It's the the little dollops um, allow you to um, evoke some humor, but for us as readers, it gives us this kind of leap to go from one place to another, and we are always happy 
no matter where we land. <laughs> I, I mean, I almost think is what just listening to what you say. I think like maybe this is how we get through our own lives. I mean, what if what if our life was this long linear procession that every day added up to some plot point? <laughs> you know, I don't know that I think we'd go crazy. So I I, I actually was I think literally trying to uh, to actually be more realistic. Than, than Middlemarch or something, you know, that, that where, where, which I love. It's one of my favorite books in the whole world. And if I could do Middlemarch, I'd, you know, retire today. But, um, you know, I think we sort of live in memory and, and we walk around. I mean, I walk around and, you know, I was on the beach today in Capitola and remembering being in Lake Michigan, remembering being in Rhode Island with my uncle Meyer. You know, I, I'm constantly uh, somewhere else, which I know, everybody is right and so it feels like to me like if i could sort of replicate that movement in of memory then i could have a book that that had some kind of progression and yet wasn't quite linear but also was actually how i actually experienced life which i, I don't think i'm that strange but i, I mean i know i'm a little strange <laughs> but no, not at all. Now, uh, I, there are a lot of really great kind of historical fiction aspects of, of this book, and I'd like you to talk about how did you do you research this stuff? I, I do. I, I I actually love research. I I love I love everything about writing, but the actual writing. <laughs> you know, I, I and I'll, I'll, I'd rather read. I'd rather research. I'd rather wander around my block in San Francisco. I'd rather do and, and writing is you know doesn't come easy for me. I, I when I lose myself in it, I'm enjoying it. But you know, a lot of times it's it has to be. I have to sort of work myself up. So research was a blast because what I found was that I'm from Chicago and the book's all about Chicago, I found that, you know, I found that what I thought I knew I didn't. And it was actually kind of like approaching my own life and my own experience as a stranger by looking at the actual resources that could tell me what I'd experienced, what I'd lived through. Just to give you one example, uh, the Chicago mayor races of the 70s and 80s. When I was a kid uh, during the, you know, I, I wasn't, I was 10 and then 15, I guess, in the, the in 87. Um, or no, anyway, I'm mixing everything up. But but my well, point it is goes that... with your novel. <laughs> exactly. I see, there you go. I don't know what year it is or what anything I'm talking about, except that the mayor's race in Chicago just was one very exciting race and that's covered in the book. And that was the first African-American mayor of Chicago was elected in 1983 named Harold Washington. And that race was incredibly exciting and incredibly... Um, uh, uh, historical for many ways, unfortunately some dark ways because the city of Chicago showed itself to be as racist as unfortunately it was at that time. And I lived through that as a kid and I remember watching it. Reading about it now was like, I mean, I couldn't even believe, it was even more fascinating in some ways. So I sort of revisited something that I knew, I thought I knew about and didn't. Now, this book, too, has a, one of the aspects of this book I really, really like is that, and we heard this in the reading, that is that you acknowledge and it, there's a lot of politics in this mm -hmm. book. Not necessarily that it's a political book, but that politics plays a part in all the people's lives. And I love that. And, and I love your portraits of politicians and the way that people perceive politicians and the way that we experience that, because that's a really important part of American life that isn't often acknowledged. And isn't it incredible that I, it's not? I mean, I, that it's not. I, mean, I don't get it, really. We live, I, I, I kind of, my brother talks about <laughs> this, and he's a great storyteller himself, but he always says, 
the difference between Republicans and Democrats, or at least in his own experience, is that Democrats really love to fall in love with their candidates. We fall in love with our candidates. And this is, I'm talking about like Dukakis and Mondale and things like that. Like we actually thought that these men were good people. And I think they were. And mm. we, and, and, and I think, and he always says, and the difference between Republicans is they just, they just win. And, and, you know, things have changed a lot. And we've, I mean, Democrats certainly fell in love with the current president. And I know a lot of people are falling out of love with him, unfortunately, but, you know, um, I'm still with him for the moment. But um, I, I think that uh, these are great stories and, and they're per, like, it, they're, it's personal. It's almost like love itself when we start to believe that politics can change things, just like we believe that love will change our lives. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So I love these stories. Well, you know, that's what's interesting. You talk about story because you have such an interesting sense of story. Um, it's this kind of, as you described it earlier, it's like these kind of disjointed memories that, you know, you can what you can grab out of the out of the boiling stew of your tiny brain right. is not it's not always just just nice linked A to Z kind of thing. It's and I think this happens both in love and in politics. So I'd like you to just talk about creating your sense of stories because I think you must discover them. I discover them because I, I just always find that uh, that a story will find it's not necessarily what you set out to get to and again you know if I was a mystery writer I'd have a lot of trouble <laughs> you know what I mean because I'd have there have to be a killer and a mystery and all of this but I think it's very mysterious where like where a story actually originates and how it becomes it takes hold of your consciousness why one thing is repeatable when you get home at night and tell your family a story what what was it about that particular thing that got you and usually it's something that's not plot pointy usually it's some some odd detail that 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 struck you at least it is in my case and so you know um the other day i i i just i'm constantly collecting these things you know and i i i find it uh i find where we find stories to be strange i i saw a fish i saw some fish being unloaded on mission street um in the morning you know, when they come into the fish store in the morning, I'd never seen this. I was up pretty early, and I was watching the fish being dumped from the truck into a a, a, a garbage can, which was in the street. And then one fish didn't make it into the garbage can that made it in the store. One fish was in the middle of Mission Street at 6 o'clock in the morning with cars going by, some cars and some people. And it was, I just watched it, and it was it was horrible because this fish wasn't going to make it, and it eventually got run over. And I, But... That to me was a great story, and I, I know it wasn't fun for the fish, but I was, and I wish I had the presence of mind to rescue it. And I, all I could do was watch. I don't know, if, well, I don't know what that kind of person that makes me, but anyway. Well, so, I think it makes <laughs> that you was a, a bit of a segue. Sorry, it makes you a hell of a storyteller. That's a oh, great theme. Oh, thank you. And, and I think it it speaks to the way you write your books, and that because there's the the scene you just have you just described to us has a, a feeling both of immediacy we can see the fish going into the trash can but there's a kind of a forlorn feeling of that fish being left out and also that the helpless feeling you the narrator standing there not knowing what to do and i think that those three <laughs> parts that's a great story right there and i think like we're i mean in, unlike the heroes of the world storytellers i think are watching and and you know it makes us it doesn't make me feel great because you know but i think sometimes i actually am so paralyzed by something that i actually don't 
act because I'm too busy watching it. And that, you know, I, w- I wish it wasn't always the case, but, um, but in that case it was. Well, you know, too, you said that uh, you talked about uh, being a mystery writer. I actually think you would make a fine mystery writer because this book, as I say, in many ways it reads like a mystery. We're trying to put together the whole picture of these three generations, and you literally cannot do it till you finish that book, and that's the idea of a good mystery. You got to the last pit word on the last page, and A, you keep us glued, suspense, all the way through. And B, we put in together the picture all the way through. Oh, I, that's wonderful to hear because uh, you know you never know. And 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 I, but I think with generations and putting together like a family arc of a family story is that it's that it is like that. It's it's pieces. You you're picking up like let's say you're looking into your own lives and generations back, and you want to know what, why, or at least somewhat why people acted the way they did. Because I think. It's not easy to get the actual answer of why people act the way they do towards each other. But I find that if you if you collect anecdotes, moments, vignettes, whatever you want to call them, and, and build them up, I think you can create entire lives on the page, which is all I'm after. And so I think human beings are mysterious. So I, in a larger sense, I, I think... I think uh, that mystery that it is about mystery but you know it's not doesn't always make it like a car chase no <laughs> i like your form of mysteries better <laughs> Thanks. I, I i wanted to talk a little bit about you know your nonfiction. i think mm-hmm. that your work as an editor uh also informs sure. your fiction obviously mm-hmm. because you're collecting stories in in both of these books um Tell us about your decision to teach in Zimbabwe. That's a fascinating uh, idea. Where were you before when you decided it would be a good idea to do that? I, I actually I taught in Namibia, which um, is uh, yeah. further south mm-hmm. and, and and west. But um, I was I just got out of college and I I moved to Washington D.C. because I kind of had this vague notion that I would get into that I would get a job on Capitol Hill because of my interest in politics. And at that time, uh, this was in 1990. Um, I ended up, Namibia became independent that year, and they needed English teachers, and I jumped on board a program that, that sent me to, a, to Namibia, a place I'd really never heard of, um, and it was incredibly exciting, and it you know, led to you know, changing my life almost entirely, and uh, you know, I'm so grateful for it. And, uh, and that was the first novel, Second Coming of Marvelous Chicago, and then this latest book that happened uh, last year, Zimbabwe, mm-hmm. and which I visited when I was a teacher in, in Namibia. Um, I went to Zimbabwe, and this was about 1991-92, when things in Zimbabwe were still, uh, the glow was still on, for, in a way, for Mugabe. The, mm-hmm. the truth about him wasn't out yet. And so I went and absolutely fell in. I mean, Namibia is incredibly beautiful, country and uh, two deserts come together to form this incredibly dramatic landscape. Zimbabwe could not be more different. Um, It's lush and green and, you know, I've never been to Ireland, but when I got to Zimbabwe, I thought, it's like Ireland. It's all green hills and beauty and fertile and, you know, Zimbabwe used to be the breadbasket of Southern Africa and what's happened in Zimbabwe is incredible strategy. So when I was doing the oral histories, I thought um, it would be great to um, do a do a project in Zimbabwe to try and show American readers and other readers because the book just came out in South Africa, which we're very proud of. Um, what went so wrong in Zimbabwe from 
the hope of the 80s to to the absolute desperation that the country's in now. So, um, well, tell us a little bit about working with Dave Eggers in the McSweeney series. Uh, How did that happen? Dave Eggers and McSweeney's are, are are brave to to publish um, books that don't have any, um, you know, obvious marketability. Let's say, <laughs> you know, and 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 the reason is is that Voice of Witness is is really uh, is a, is a nonprofit series uh, that McSweeney's runs concurrent with their you know their other books, which are wonderful. But but Voice of Witness is really different and separate, and it it grew out of. Um, uh, two early books, one about um, uh, uh, one about an oral history of um, people who have been exonerated but served prison time, and Dave and and Lola Volan, who they started this project together, were interested in telling those stories to the public to see what it was, what's it like to be somebody who's been locked incarcerated for a number of years and then get out and have those stories side by side, mm -hmm. and the, the series kind of took off from that idea, um, and. Uh, and then I came along and suggested that we do one on undocumented people because in nineteen in two thousand and seven, mm -hmm. remember there was all this talk that there was going to be a, an immigration deal and undocumented people were coming out of the shadows and into the streets and saying I'm here I, I'm a part of this country, and I I thought it was an exciting moment and maybe one that would be interesting to collect those stories, and and Dave and McSweeney's were crazy enough to say, oh, yeah, that's a great idea. Why don't you go ahead and do it? <laughs> so, which is so great about working with, with, with the whole organization. And um, same with Zimbabwe. I mean, there was not, there's not a clamor for a Zimbabwe oral history, but, um, but there was, there was a, we were met with a great deal of, um, you know, uh, they were happy to do it. It's an important book. I mean, it's nice to see that, you know, we're preserving, actually preserving history as it happens yeah. for, uh, by the voices of the people who actually experience it as opposed to somebody who goes out there and says says what they looks good. And that's what's so exciting for a novelist and a story writer to go and sit down with somebody for hours and just hear what they have to say about their lives. And And, and for me, that was an education. I mean, first of all, you know, to not only shut up in re in real time, but in your own head, mm -hmm. you know, you, you, you start to get, like, you, you know, it's such a um, a gift to spend that kind of time with the people that I was able to, because usually I'm alone in my garage working, <laughs> you know, reinventing people, and so this this is really one way, one way of getting out of that, and I, I've I've so enjoyed it, and I look forward to doing more. Well, let's take take you back to Namibia. Sure. Were you writing then? Was that when you were creating the Esther stories? Yes, I mean, in part, I think I I remember sitting in Namibia at my desk in the at the school I was working at, and on, and I was writing a story all through those years about a guy from Chicago who was somehow he was trapped in a mall. He couldn't get out of the mall. I mean, I, I was in the desert of Namibia, and that's what I was thinking about. So I've always sort of had this. I've always I'm always writing about a place where I'm not, you know. And so in Namibia, I wrote about Chicago. When I got home to Chicago and then moved to Boston and then moved out here, um, I spent all the, that time uh, thinking about Namibia, I mean, for, for a decade when I was working on that book. So while I was in Namibia, yeah, I think my brain was in the Esther Stories mode. Um, Esther Stories came out after I got back, but mm -hmm. I, I, I'm always sort of, I'm always where I'm not. I, mean, I, I had a friend who's a yoga teacher say that I never, I don't live in the present moment. I think that's probably true. <laughs> so. Well, that's good because I, though you're able to capture. I think what's interesting is that 
um, in your your writing captures uh, captures present moments better than it might be um, if you tried to do it in the present moment. But I think I guess because when you're when you're writing like the scenes from Love and Shame and Love, um, do you? Um, like say, okay, today is a World War II day, or today is a 1990 day, or today is you know a 1960s day. Do you, do you, or do you, do you just sit down and say, uh oh, it's the 1960s? <laughs> right. I, I can't even track it. I mean, I I remember I was working on this book and I, I heard Philip Roth on the radio, who you know a writer I admire a great deal, and Roth said something like, he had a note over his desk that said, "Don't write, remember," and that that struck me. Don't write, remember. And I think I, I, I employed a lot of that in here. Even when I wasn't directly remembering, I, what I like to think in this book and in general is I think we can create memories for other people, our characters. So I would remember on behalf of a character something. And, and usually it had just maybe it had to do with something I was reading or there's a scene in the book uh, where um, Frank Sinatra and Sammy Davis and, uh, and uh, um, they're... Who's the other guy? I forget. <laughs> uh, Dean Martin. Uh, Dean Martin, of course. They are they are uh, at a show in Chicago mm-hmm. doing uh, performing, and that was because I had the uh, I had the CD of that actual live concert, and I was listening to it, and I was like, Sammy and 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 Frank and Dean are in in uh, in in Chicago, and I could hear their banter on stage, and I literally just kind of used it in the scene, and I put my characters there. In the in the uh, in the concert at the at the show, and uh, that was just because I happened to be listening to the CD I found in a used CD place one day. So they ran. I guess it's more random than. And then when I have a structure, when I know what I'm doing, it becomes a lot less random. And then I go after stuff and time, and I kind of know what I'm doing. But I think the first three or four years, I'm sort of waiting around in the stuff. Well, you know, I really like that idea. What you said about. Um, creating characters is like creating memories because to me the best books are actually um artificial memories i mean you know if the the best books that i read i can go back and visit the moments in those books as if they were vacations i took (laughs) and i think that that's what you know the power of of good writing and you know our the the joy of reading is reading does something that no other art form can ever come close to and I think you do a good job of it because you <laughs> capture those kind of memories. So talk about just well, you're you're the kind of reader that we want, and 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 I'm not sure that you know. I think, I I, I think there's a almost like this is I don't know. I don't want to be too negative, but I, I wonder sometimes if people are reading in the way that you are in such an imaginative, close, connecting to f- people who aren't don't exist. I think there's a lot of pressure of. On, on nonfiction, on people to oh, I got to learn something from what I read. I hear this a lot. Do you, I don't know. It's a little bit change the subject, but no, no, no. You know, I, 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 I think it's a beautiful thing to, for for you to subsume other people's memories through through a piece of fiction. And I, I just think I hope I hope more people out there doing it. Well, I mean, that's the uh, I mean the famous Philip K. Dick story. We can remember it for you wholesale. <laughs> right. right. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> it gets to be scary that way. Too. <laughs> well, he's he 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 was a guy who had a uh, you know he wrote a lot of kind of hack fiction mm-hmm. because he had to, but he had a he was fairly um, he he was very literate and oh, thought a lot yeah. uh, thought a lot about this oh, stuff. Yeah. And I think that you know there's a lot uh, to that kind of idea of you know recreating memories, and I think that's one of the things that makes this book. Um, 
so immediate because it captures like smells and and the light. Now your brother mm-hmm. <laughs> did the drawings for this he book. Did. Talk about this that collaboration. Was that easy? Uh, well, it's your brother, so there's always going to be uh, roadblocks. But no, my brother it was a delightful experience. My brother is a, is a is a great uh, cartoonist and illustrator. And a small plug for him, he's got a really wonderful piece in the um, Best American Comics 2011, um, which is wonderful. And uh, I t- I asked him to do this, and he was so um, pleased to try. And what was nice about working with your brother is that I could say to him. You know, can you create for me? Can you do a drawing of of um, uh, Millard's Beach in in 1973? And he'll know exactly what I'm talking about. There's probably five people in the world that know Millard's Beach is kind of a. It was I think it's our own our, our own family name for this particular beach on Lake Michigan near our house. And uh, and and you know we it's to work with somebody who shares your common memories. Or it was really great. I mean, I suppose. Working with another illustrator would have been more difficult, but for me it was just a delight. And I, I drove him crazy because I had him constantly running around trying to do things that didn't even make it in the book. But 13 did, and they're beautiful drawings, and the cover is him, and so I've been really grateful for that. It's really lovely. It had, it, I think the, the style of the drawings captures the style of the prose because it, it's uh, light. Yeah, and it allows the reader or the viewer, as it were, to enter it, and uh, it doesn't tell us what to think. Exactly, and I, I actually the one the one stipulation I has let's not have any people. You know, let's just have it um, more stark and not have people. And so he went with that. And he's a great he's a great character just the people. So it was a little bit hard to get him to not have people, <laughs> but he did. So. Now let's talk about creating some of the characters in this book. Mm-hmm. Uh, Alexander Popper. Was this the first character to arrive for you, or I mean, how how do you create characters? Well, I think as you mentioned, this, the characters in this book were pre-made for me because I they were already existing in Esther stories, and even there's a tiny scene in Esther stories that I actually stole from my own book. Um, I don't know if there's a copyright <laughs> violation because it's a different company, but I stole it and I worked it in. Uh, it's a scene with Bernice uh, dancing. Mm-hmm. It's actually from Esther stories. And I think it started there. I wanted to, and that's 1953 in a dance studio, a ballet studio in Chicago, where um, Philip, the father character, goes to ask for money from his mother. <laughs> and uh, and that, uh, that the book kind of starts with that idea that the men in this particular family have no idea how much they need the women in their lives and and but but they they go on taking and taking and taking and i i feel like if there's one sort of reigning idea i mean there's lots of things in the book but it it started with that idea that you know we the men in this book sort of blindly take and have no clue which i think is some somewhat common experience that people have but anyway oh i may remotely resemble that (laughs) remark (laughs) i think it's been aimed in my general direction i think and i and i don't think it's entirely a gender thing but i do think it you know at times it does feel that way and and uh but so those characters i um but i really wanted them to live again and you know they are pretty close to me personally so there was that but i i felt like um you know, I felt like there was another another whole book behind what I'd done in the first book. So. One of the things that I think is is uh, really charming about this book is your sense of humor. It's re- this book is really funny, and I it's as a writer, um, 
you do a good job of you know making us laugh and, and evoking that kind of uh, you know the without like poking fun but talk about that do you is that something does that just uh, pour off do these things pour off the page in in, an, in a state of utter perfection <laughs> they just you just type them up and then and that's it you just file them away and you're good I wish I could I wish that was the case I'm a rewriter up until the very last minute something's published in fact i'm rewriting it you know if i showed you my the book i have here it's got notes that i want to change for the paperback i am um, I'm, <laughs> really? I'm constantly because i think you know some because some jo- if a joke clunks and you know there's a lot of clunkers uh that can just hurt you <laughs> and then they you know especially when i'm reading a piece out loud i can tell if a joke doesn't hit mm-hmm. you know and, and it's not like i'm trying to be jokey it's just that i i, I don't know i come from a family where we're we're where it wasn't, we didn't tell jokes. We told stories that were funny, mm-hmm. and that was like a big thing to us. Um, and around my kitchen table, it was pretty competitive, actually, to 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 get attention by mm-hmm. telling a funny anecdote about something that happened to you that day. And so I think I kind of learned that, you know, through my family, and and other great funny writers. So you know. this book is like a, a four hundred page uh, kitchen table. I think it. I think that's a great way to describe it, actually. <laughs> Now, you mentioned Philip Roth, and and this this book is certainly uh, another entry in in you know really great Jewish literature. And, and when you write in that vein, I think you really have to think about it, don't you? I think you do. And I you know I have to say that Roth, although I admire him, my my gods are are Malamud and to uh, to a lesser extent Bellow. I, I I give a lot of nods to Bellow in the book because I'm a Chicagoan and I learned a great deal about just not just about Chicago, about language and about energy from Bellow, but, um, but it's Malamud, actually, that, that where I think if you can track how funny Malamud is in the darkest, saddest way, I mean, there's no sadder writer to me in the whole world than Bernard Malamud. And so I think, but he uses comedy and humor in ways that you can't even believe they're existing in the same paragraph, you know? And I think I, I study, and I study these guys, Isaac Babel, uh, you know how how people how people do it because I I'm stunned by the great how the great ones do it and so I you know I'm trying my best. Now, when you were putting this book together, um, a book like this, because it it uh, has this kind of like deck of cards feel to it, um, how how did that work? I mean, that seems like that must be it must be like you have two really different but equally difficult tasks one is just creating the pieces there's hundreds and hundreds of pieces the other is putting them together and saying okay this one comes after this one no this one i mean it seems like you could just spend the rest of your life making that decision if i could do it right now i could i would change some of the order and uh, you know there's a galley the galley has a different order than than the hardcover I mean, oh really the, the paperback i'll try not to monkey my editors threaten me she's like don't change the order in the paperback you cannot change the order in the paperback but i think that like life, you know, which is constantly changing, it seems to me that books don't have to be so static. And I think, I think, I, I tried not to worry about well, if this comes after this piece, it won't kill the book if it if it was reversed. And 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 I like to think, okay, this is the final; it's written in stone. But I kind of think, in a way, I I tried to be a little more easy on myself and do the best I could to have things follow. And you know, what I would do is I would read 
intensely, which is hard to read, reread, reread your own work when you'd rather read somebody else's, you know, mm -hmm. personally. But so I would read, and then I'd say, all right, what can what can follow? What what's a natural follow here? But that would change all the time. So I you know I was, it was a little bit. I ran I ran myself ragged. I'd put it on the floor, and I'd you know try and work it out. But yeah, I'm not I'm not always married to it. I mean that's the thing. You know, it seems change. to me like you could do this as a as a kind of a database and uh, and and uh, or a hyperlinked uh, document, and you could have a lot of fun. And in a sense, you could turn this into a choose-your-own-lifeline <laughs> adventure kind of thing with a, with a little bit of technology. Have you considered something I, like that? I, I haven't because I'm really a technophobe, but, uh, but I have a friend uh, who suggested that, and I think people try it. And, you know, I, I, I mean, I'm still, I still think that books are mm -hmm. better. You know, books are still something you hold in your hands, but that is not to say that I don't actually sort of try and replicate that in in, on, a, on the written page. Well, you know? actually, you do. Yeah. I, and one of the, the things, I mean, I have to say, I love books. I mean, that that right there is a 500-year-old technology right. that is still 100% viable and yeah. still hard to challenge. And there yeah. are not many technologies that have lasted that long. True, un, True. Virtually unchanged, yeah. I mean, since Gutenberg. I right. mean, really. Right. Pages bound together, that's... Yeah, that stuff terminal. still works. Yeah, yeah, that's amazing. <laughs> but I know that times are changing, and that, and that, that, that you know, I, am almost, on, I, I might even get one of those devices. I, I, my, I was talking to a friend this weekend who's just like, look, it'll just make your when you travel, then you won't have to take that big bag. You know, you can take three books as opposed to seven, eight, nine. You know, so I'm, I'm a terrible traveler. You know. I'm down here in Santa Cruz for a night. You should see how many stuff, how much stuff I brought. It's ridiculous. Yeah. So if I had a Kindle, maybe my life would be lighter. So oh, I, I can I confess that even though I only drove from my house to here, which is about three miles, I brought not only your book but an extra book in case I got stuck in the car and I could read a couple hundred pages. I, right here. I, do the, I mean, I'm glad to know there's somebody as who does this. What if there's an earthquake? Yeah, exactly. What, what if I, what if my car runs out of gas or you know I get in an accident? I gotta wait for somebody to come. I'm just sitting there. What am I gonna do? What am I gonna do? I, I mean, I don't know that there's that many people who do this, <laughs> so I'm nice. it's nice to meet someone else who does. But I, I've got a book right here that just in case, maybe Rick, maybe he left. Maybe we, we weren't going to do the interview. Maybe I was too late or something. I have a V.S. Pritchett book anyway. So uh, so tell me what you're working on now. Uh, I, I, always a tough always a tough question, but um, I have a new book of stories that should be out um, within a year or a year and a half. It's actually finished, um, mm -hmm. although I'm rewriting them and and I'm so happy to be back to kind of my roots in the in the isolated story, you know, where it's not where there are, where people aren't necessarily resurrected, that they that they do go away and fade away. And um, it's a sad book, the new one. But I mean, I guess all my work is. I guess. Well, I I don't think so. I think there's, although there's true sadness. I think that in when in genuine observation of the actual human condition, <laughs> there must. Be inherently be some form of joy. I, I I couldn't agree more. And I I think even in even in the sorrow there is you know especially the retelling you know could, isn't there there's some famous quote about that you know uh, uh, Hebrew proverb or something you know troubles told retold or good to tell or I'm getting it wrong but something I, like that. No, I yeah. think you're getting it right, and I think <laughs> your book's not a not a bad example of that. Oh, Although you. it's not so troubling, it's it's really quite beautiful. Do you do you still live with these characters? I mean, I, I'm guessing that these people 
must still be with you, and they are going to pop up again. Um, I hope so. I haven't written them yet, uh, but um, you know, I'm actually going back to to characters in other books now. In, in the Africa book, in the Namibia book, those characters are starting to talk to me. So it's strange. You just I can I can't quite track it. But um, you know, I do I do. That's why when the hyperlink situation makes me scared because I'm like at a certain point you have to say goodbye and maybe you'll maybe you'll say hello again <laughs> in a few years but I think you gotta I think these guys I'm gonna I'm gonna say goodbye to them for a couple of years you know even though um Seymour the grandfather never seems to go away so I actually have a new Seymour story but for <laughs> the other ones I think I'm gonna say goodbye to Alex and the rest I think they're gonna say goodbye for a while well, we'll look forward to saying hello to your forthcoming work. I've been speaking with Peter Orner. Her, his newest book is Love and Shame and Love, and I think that pretty much encapsulates most of my life, although I might have to have more of the shame and love and shame. <laughs> right, right. Double up the shame. Yeah. Thank you for joining me, Peter. Thank you so much for having me, Rick. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.